0: well good evening ladies and gentlemen you're all very welcome my name is Shane Mulhall and the title to the talk tonight is philosophy and stress The subtitle is that this creation causes no stress now what does scripture say about this creation it says that this creation is an act of love it's pervaded by truth consciousness and vitality. It's full of bliss, harmony, beauty and order, justice, freedom and abundance. And it is pure, perfect and complete. Now, our experience is all of these to a degree, but also we find the creation chaotic. Accidental, deficient, with war, crime, addiction, and cruelty, poverty, ignorance, decay, and death, hatred, boredom, envy, grief, mistrust, and stress. So one of us has got it wrong. Each one can say that all of these, from both camps, are known to us in experience and experience cannot be denied so we're still left with the question Then, if our experience cannot be denied is the creation one or the other description or is it a mixture of both the proposition is that it is pure, perfect and complete that it is free from stress and that it only offers happiness. And yet we have the experience of the opposite. So we need to look at our experience. And the question is, not whether we experience something or not, but is our experience true or real? And the famous analogy from the East is of the snake on the rope. And what is said that in pure light or an excellent light, one will see a rope. But in dusk, one might mistake the rope for a snake. The darkness or the dusk here represents ignorance. So in ignorance we may take a rope to be a snake. Now, if you believe you have met a a snake, then you will enjoy the experience of a snake even though it's not there. You might experience terror, recoil, and run away, even though there's no actual snake there. And even though you've had the experience of meeting a snake, the question is, did the snake ever actually exist? And could the snake ever, in truth, actually harm you? You can experience an imaginary snake, but an imaginary snake cannot actually bite you and it cannot actually poison you. So it can't, in truth, ever harm you. So despite our experience, the imaginary snake cannot affect us, in truth, in any way. Well, we can all experience all sorts of imaginary things and are not true. And the question for us is, in our normal waking state, do we actually see the snake or the rope? What philosophy says is that if you're not fully awake, you will not see the rope. And the question is, are we fully awake? Or do we live in a twilight world in which imaginary snakes abound? There's a curious factor about the different levels of consciousness, and I just keep it very simple, so we take the dreaming state, the waking state of consciousness, and we make it the higher state of consciousness when you're in a dream you believe the contents of the dream to be true so if there's a dream tiger you don't rationalize to yourself it's only a dream tiger the little dream you runs away as fast as it can because for you the dream tiger is real while you're in the dream when you wake up you now realize it wasn't real it was only an imaginary tiger And there's no more fear. Well, imagine if you woke up from the ordinary waking state to the higher state of consciousness. Then you might find that what you consider to be your life is just a dream. A life in which there is poverty, stress, grief, anger, and all these things. But in fact, it's only a dream. In the highest state of consciousness, none of this would exist, just as the dream tiger does not exist when you wake up. Maybe the misery and the stress that we experience is just the imaginary snake of our dream life. And the bliss and the beauty and the perfection which the scriptures speak of is the real rope Now we need to discover which is true or real and the only way is to come out of the ordinary waking state and then we will discover whether the contents of our ordinary waking state are imaginary or real. There is a story, a famous story about a king from India whose name was Janaka. And he was in court one day and he fell asleep. In his sleep, he went into a dream and he was a beggar. And the life was so terrible that it produced tears, real tears in his eyes. And the, the tears fell down his face and the moisture woke him up. And he was very uh, curious about this experience. So he asked the wise men of the court. He said, Am I a king dreaming that I'm a beggar? Or am I a beggar dreaming that I'm a king? How do you know? How do you know you're not going to wake up in the next minute and all that you've held to be real is totally imaginary? If you want to find out, you have to wake up. And what the wise say is you do wake up you will wake up to a pure, perfect and complete creation which causes no stress. So in truth the reality is perfect and a dream or imaginary world is pleasant at its best and a nightmare at its worst. And even if your dream is pleasant, dream food will only satisfy the dream eater. So for example, if you're awake and you're hungry and you fall asleep and you dream that you're being brought out for an excellent meal and you order everything on the menu and you eat to your heart's content so that in the dream you say I have no more room for any more food I'm fully satisfied if you then wake up you will find that you're hungry because dream food will only satisfy the dream eater it cannot satisfy the real Hungry person. The question is, for you and I, is are you fully satisfied? And if you can answer no to that, maybe you're not eating real food. Maybe you're eating dream food, which will never really satisfy. Real food for the body satisfies the body. Dream food leaves it hungry. Well, is there real food for the mind? And is there a real food for the heart? And if we could find that real food, then maybe our minds and hearts would be satisfied. And could a fully satisfied body, mind and heart ever suffer from stress? Now let us look at how stress actually makes its appearance. It comes about through a false use of the mind and the heart. If you eat bad food at night, you may have a nightmare. And bad food for the mind and bad food for the heart may also produce nightmares. The nightmare of living the nightmare of misery, or the nightmare of stress. So let us look at the dream which takes place in our ordinary lives, in our ordinary waking state. This dream which actually produces the stress which is imaginary. So we look at the mind first of all. Now the false use of mind is the false ideas which operate in the mind. And these are ideas which we believe to be true but in fact are false. And this false knowledge conjures up stress. It's knowledge of that which does not exist. So the first category of false knowledge is comparison. And this has many aspects, but the first aspect is what is and what has been. And the tendency is to superimpose what has been on what is. And this can cause stress. So for example, you've gone to a particular party, it's your aged aunt who invites you to this party every Christmas As far as you're concerned, it's a disastrous party. It's normally a Bulgarian wine. She makes a special Christmas cake which you hate. And she buys you a tie which even a dog wouldn't wear. And she asks you the same questions. So anyway, you get your annual invitation and you say, I'm not going to enjoy this party. And you go along and you experience a dreadful party. And you think you've got the gift of prophecy. Because you were able to tell, I wasn't going to enjoy this party, and now I didn't. But in fact, you didn't go to this year's party. You went to last year's party (laughs) again. And you can't go to last year's party again, except in imagination. You can't eat the same apple twice you can't go to the same party twice. So when there is this knowledge of what is and what has been, you may find stress arising. The second aspect of comparison is what is and what could be. And there's a story which illustrates this. The man who founded the School of Philosophy Worldwide, his name was Leon McLaren, and a lady came to him, For advice and she said to him she was very very worried and he asked her well are you in good health and she said yes he said are you married and she said yes are you happily married yes you love your husband yes you have children yes and they're all well and doing well yes and there's money in the bank yes so she answered yes to every question and he said well what are you worried about and she said think of what might happen Now, we spend a lot of time thinking about what might happen. It's a knowledge of that which does not exist and it conjures up stress. The third aspect of comparison is what is and how I want it to be. And this is where we resist reality. We resist what is actually taking place. And I've told this story before my passport had run out and so I had to change or updated and the old passport had the visa for America and these days you needed a visa to enter America and this was a multiple entry visa. So anyway the old passport had run out and I was sent a new passport and I had a business meeting in New York So I went to the airport with my new passport. And I proudly showed it to the check-in attendant. She said to me, you can't go to America. And I said, but this is a valid passport. And she said, but there's no visa in it. So I immediately cursed the Department of Foreign Affairs for not telling me that I should bring my old passport with me. They should have known that I was going to New York in a few weeks' time. So I complained bitterly to her about the Department of Foreign Affairs. And as an Aer Lingus employee, she listened to me very patiently as I complained about the Department of Foreign Affairs and their ineptitude, as far as I was concerned. And I insisted to her that I get on this plane, that she needed to appreciate that this was a very, very important meeting. And there were important people waiting for me in New York, so I had to get on the plane. Now this day there's sweat pouring down my face and I'm unbelievably angry speaking in a very slow and measured way to her about how I must get on the plane. Well she listened to me very patiently and with utter sympathy she said to me you may get on the plane but they won't let you off. <laughs> so, now, and at that point in time which took a very long time for this stupid person, but anyway, at that point in time, reality set in, and I realized, I'm not getting on the plane. And once I accepted that I wasn't getting on the plane, all the stress went. Acceptance eliminates all stress on the instant. And then reason operates to deal with the situation. So it was possible to make a few phone calls and move the meeting on for a day get the passport and get out there and do whatever had to be done. The fourth aspect of comparison is what is and what should be. And this is the curse of knowing better. You might know somebody who suffers from this, so you'll be able to help them. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody other than yourself who thinks that they know better. You know what it's like when you're taking instructions from your father or mother or your boss and you know better. (laughs) It's like spending your life sitting in the passenger seat of the car. Utter misery as they say. Now some of you are probably suffering from stress now. You think you could give a better lecture than I can but only i know better <laughs> so, so that's why i'm suffering from stress now so, okay. all the stress with comparison is caused from knowing something extra something which does not exist the second false use of the mind which causes stress is a belief in gain and loss. We believe that there is gain and loss in life. But the creation doesn't work like that. For every action there is a reaction. For every wave there is a hollow. So there is no gain and there is no loss. And if there is no gain and there's no loss, well, what's the point of it all? And the point of all it all is that it's a gain to be enjoyed. But there is no gain and there's no loss. If there is no gain and there is no loss, there cannot be any stress. And it's very obvious, if you take a large enough view, you come into this world crawling with no teeth and bald, and you go out of this world bald with no teeth and crawling. So there is no gain and there is no loss. So where does this belief in gain and loss come from? It comes due to a limitation of our view with regard to time and space. It's a narrow picture of events or of our life which causes us to believe in gain and loss. So let's take the first one, this narrow view of space. So let's say I'm playing a game of cards and good fortune is not with me, so I'm losing. As far as I'm concerned, there is loss. But if somebody was looking at the entire table, all they would see is the same sum of money moving around between the participants. From the table's point of view, there's no gain or no loss. Only if you separate yourself off can you come up with gain or loss. So that's how we do it in terms of space. If you do it as regards time, it's like watching a film, a romantic film. So the couple meet, then they argue, and then they make up, and they go off walking into the moon or the sunset together. And you think, gay. But if you just roll on 20 or 30 years, <laughs> his teeth have fallen out at this stage. <laughs> She's gone senile, and can't remember him anymore, who he is. <laughs> so, <laughs> all of these days. So if you just take a long enough viewpoint in terms of time, it all wraps itself up in nothing. Now, if you believe in gain and loss, this is unbelievably depressing. If you understand that it's just a gain, it's actually liberating. It frees you from all this stress. Children love living. Not the results of life, but living itself so a child loves to do the washing up a very young child loves to do the washing up and if you allow it to do the washing up and it finishes it it will often say can i do them again now you have never ever ever said that <laughs> and, and you never will you'll never say can i have another go at this puff <laughs> because you don't love washing up you love when it's finished and you pay a big price for that because you don't enjoy your life when you are washing up but the child is enjoying itself all the time because it loves living if you and I could live in a big enough world not a world of me and others and not a world of when I'm 30 or 40 or something like that. But if you and I could live in a big enough world, beyond me, beyond family, beyond community, and live in the universe itself, then we would discover that there is no gain or loss, and with it, there is no stress. The third category of the false use of mind, which results in stress arising, is the belief that happiness is derived from things outside of myself. So the ordinary belief is that my family or my job, or my wealth, or my car, all of these add to my happiness. They make me happier. But as the Shankaracharya said, joy with an object is bondage. Because if your happiness is dependent on any object outside of yourself, then you will have dependency. And with dependency automatically arises fear. The fear of loss. And with fear comes anger. It's like waiting for someone that you love. And so you say to them that you will meet them at Three o'clock and they nod their head in agreement that they will turn up at three. So you arrive there at three o'clock and you're full of the joys of spring because it's your beloved who's coming to meet you. And you're really looking forward to meeting them. And now it's five past three. And the mind begins to move just a little bit. At ten past three it begins to wonder has a CIE bus knocked her down. In fact, you remember the way she was staring at your best friend. There seemed to be sort of a a degree of interest there, which you had sort of overlooked until now. (laughs) So this fear begins to arise. She's dead, and I never actually really told her how much I loved her. Or that, you know, she's gone off my best friend. This fear is replaced by anger. Why should she do this to me? This is so unfair. And when she does arrive, and she's now alive of course, you want to kill her (laughs) because she's put you through this. Well, that's what joy with an object does to you. With fear comes the attempt to change or control the outside world so that I can ensure my happiness will continue. And again, there's an amusing story about this, of a mouse who's afraid of cats, which is obviously very understandable. And he happens to know where a magician lives. So he decides, I'll go to this magician and see, can he cure me of my fear of cats? The magician listens to his story, and he says, all right, I'll tell you what I'll do is, I'll turn you into a cat. So he gets out his little magic book says whatever he has to say and he turns the little mouse into a cat. And so the mouse cat goes off very, very happy, no longer afraid of cats anymore. But anyway, he comes back a week later and he says to the magician, I'm afraid of dogs. All right, so the magician, being a very patient one, says, all right, gets out his book and turns him into a dog. And he comes back a week later and he says, I'm afraid of leopards. And the magician turns him into a leopard And he comes back a week later and he says, I'm afraid of hunters. And the magician at this stage says, with the heart of a mouse, I can do nothing for you. You don't have to change your outside world to lose all your fears. It's an inner change. But because we believe the outside world does make me happy, we try to make the good things last. We try to make the passing permanent and to secure the ever-changing. So we're like a child who's brought to the beach and who builds a sandcastle. Do you remember those monstrous sandcastles you'd build and they would have four or five turrets and a moat and maybe an outside moat. But you'd built it too close to the water so the tide started to come in. You'd feverishly try and retain your sandcastle against the the rising tide. And the anger as it was all washed away. Well, that's what we're like. We're like a child brought to the beach, allowed to play and make our sandcastle. But when we're asked to leave, we cry bitterly. Because we want to make the passing permanent. And so we get very, very cautious, because we get let down, because the passing does pass on us. And then we decide, well, I'm never going to put my all into anything, because it keeps letting me down. So I'm going to have a safe and secure life. But it ends up being a small and unhappy life. Because temporary things can only offer temporary happiness. They cannot offer permanent happiness. And if you do get what you set out for, you find that you have changed. So maybe as a young man or a young woman, you've decided, if I ever earn £30,000, I'll be a happy man or woman. And so you set out to earn this £30,000. And when you do eventually get to £30,000, you find that you're now a £50,000 man or woman. That's your living standard, And if you get to 50, you'll have grown to be a 90,000 pound man or woman. It keeps moving. We believe that happiness lies in what we value. But values are always changing. And are never true. So when we're a five-year-old, we think a Pokemon toy is what will really make me happy. When we're 10... We sneer at people who think that a Pokemon toy would make them happy. We think it's CDs that make you happy, not Pokemon toys. And we believe that's real. And when you're 15, you think a boyfriend or a girlfriend will make you happy. When you're 15 and a quarter, you realize they'll never make you happy. (laughs) But now you go on to 20 and you think it's a car or it's a career. Or it's a house. When you're 45, it's just a chair that I could be comfortable in.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> or 55 is just a cure for arthritis, and I'll be a happy person. <laughs> but each age, you believe your values are true. You think they're excellent values. You only have to look at a photograph of yourself 20 years ago to realize how pathetic your values are. You wouldn't even go to a fancy dress party tonight, dressed like you used to dress 20 years ago. It would be too frightening for everybody else. (laughs) Our values are not true. And again, there's a sort of a humorous story which uh, illustrates this. There's a man And he's married, and uh, so he has his wife, and there's five children, and he lives in a one-roomed hut. There's also a dog and a cat in this family, and the dog is chasing the cat, and the children are fighting with each other, and the wife is screaming at him. So he's under stress, as they say. He decides he can't take it anymore, so he goes to visit the wise man of the village. And he explains his situation to him. And he says, I just can't get any peace or any quiet or any space. So the wise man says to him, well, do you keep any animals? And he says, yeah, well, I keep a few pigs and a cow and some chickens and a couple of sheep. So the wise man says, well, I want you to move them all into the hut. All right? <laughs> now, this man is a very good disciple. He doesn't question the advice at all. And he moves in the cow, the sheep, the pigs and the chickens all into the hut. And whatever it was like before they came, it's now 50 times worse. It's just horrendous. Anyway, he puts up with it for a week, and then he eventually cracks. He goes back to the wise man, and he says, look, I took your advice. I put the pigs, the chickens, the sheep, and the cow into the house, and it's got worse. And so the wise man says, all right, I'll tell you what you do. Take all the animals back out again. So he goes home, he takes all the animals back out, and he sits down in his chair, and he says, ah, what? peace, what quiet, what space. Well our values are not true. If possessions could make you happy you could make someone happy. You could say I'm going to force you to be happy with these possessions. And maybe you could make someone sad. But this is not true. A happy person is happy everywhere at all times and in all circumstances because it does not derive from things outside of themselves. So that's the false use of the mind. Then there's the false use of the heart. And this is where we add emotions, and by emotions I mean feelings, to the facts. And one lady described to me how her husband had bought some tickets, I think, to an opera. And these were very dear tickets, and they were dressing up for the evening, so as far as he was concerned, it was a very special occasion. And they had to leave their house let's say, 6.30. And at about 25 past 6, he went looking for the tickets. And he couldn't find the tickets. So he ran upstairs, and he searched in the bedroom. And then he ran down again, screaming, they're not there. And then he ran back upstairs again, and decided to search the bedroom a second time, and came running down screaming, they still weren't there and after about two minutes of searching downstairs he ran upstairs again screaming and came down a couple of minutes later screaming again because he couldn't find them and she said all she saw was a man running up and down the stairs that's all that was actually happening she didn't add any emotional content to it at all and all that was happening was running was for him it was a completely different experience because he had added emotional content to running Now, we're always doing this. If you were in a room, and there was a child, a very young child in the room, and there was a bag of gold in the room, and somebody came into the room and took the bag of gold, you would see a thief, but a child wouldn't see a thief. He would just see somebody moving a bag of gold. The reason you see a thief is because there's a thief in you. And the child does not see a thief because there's no thief in the child. We think the child doesn't really understand what's going on. But maybe the child really sees what is happening and you and I see something in our minds and not what's there. What we add to the situation is probably what causes the stress. The second false use of the heart is attachment. Attachment to our possessions. But the tragedy is you become possessed by your own possessions. If you buy a new car, Ford Sierra or something like that, and somebody says, the Ford Sierra is a nice car. You smile. The comment is directed towards the car, but it's you who smiles. And if somebody said, the Ford Sierra, Is a sort of a very boring-looking car. Then you don't smile anymore. Now you're upset. The comment is directed towards the car, but you take it on because you're attached to your car. Sometimes if your car stops on the way to work, and you go to work that morning, you'll say, I broke down this morning. (laughs) And that's your experience, as if you broke down. One of the men in the school, he came home one evening, and this is just to illustrate how we will become attached to absolutely anything, not just important things. So he came home one evening, and as he opened the front door, he heard these screams from the upstairs bathroom. So he bounded upstairs, and he found his two daughters in the one bath. So they're aged three and four, something like that. And they're tearing each other's hair out. So he managed to separate them in the bath anyway, and he said to them, what's going on? So the younger one pointed to the older one and said, she's stealing my bubbles. (laughs) You see, half the bubbles belong to one party, and the other half belong to the other party. If you get onto a bus and you're the first person onto a seat, you draw a little emotional line. And because you're a fair person, it's only 50% of the seat that you actually say is mine. And if they say a large person comes along and they sit down and they come over the 50% mark, you do this sort of shoulder wrestling bit. <laughs> In a restaurant, you sit down on your side of the table and another person comes down and they have their soup and they push their empty bowl just across where the little flower is. Why? See, you get your cup and you push it back again. (laughs) Because that table is half yours. Most of you think that the chair you're sitting in is yours. You think you got a chair thrown in for a fiver. And so if you came back after the refreshment break and somebody is sitting in your chair, then you take offense. Once you possess something, it will cause you stress. Now, in order to be clear, possession is one thing and use is another. But when you possess things, you will hold them out of use. Even if you have no use for them, you'll say, because it's mine, nobody's using it. You see this with children at a very early age. Let's say they have a teddy and they also have a train set. Teddy is put down so that the child can play with the train set and he or she is happily playing away with this train set. And then the sister comes in, we make it to pick up the teddy. Now, the child hasn't been playing with it up to that moment at all, but it's his teddy. So he grabs the teddy, stuffs it under his arm, and he says, I'm having it. Even though he has no use of it at that particular point in time. Well, that's the way we are. Once we possess something, we will hold it out of use. There are said to be two problems in life. Getting what you're attached to and not getting what you're attached to. Other than that, you have no problems. As regards getting what you're attached to, once you get it, you'll attempt to retain it. And because you attempt to retain it, you will be full of fear of loss. And if you don't get what you're attached to, you will strive to attain it all your life. And in the striving, you will be full of doubt and tension as to whether you're going to get it or not the third false use of the heart is to do with a misuse of memory and there's a quotation from a sage in India called Nisargadatta and this is what he says when the heart is full of memories and anticipations It exaggerates, it distorts, it overlooks, the past is projected into the future and the future betrays the expectations. The organs of sensation and action are stimulated beyond capacity and they inevitably break down. The objects of pleasure cannot yield what is expected of them and get worn out or destroyed by misuse. It results in excess of pain where pleasure was looked for. Now there is no stress in the present moment. It is only when the mind moves to memory or anticipation that stress arises. But in the present moment there is no stress. And the present moment is real and the past and future are imaginary, existing in the mind alone. If we allow the heart and mind to exist in the past and the future, we allow them to exist in an imaginary world. And it is this imaginary world where stress makes its appearance. The present is real and the reality is blissful, stress-free existence. The cure is to wake up to the present moment. In the dream, you will avoid the dream contents if they're unpleasant. You will try to control them, pursue them, exaggerate them, or deny them. And all of this causes stress. But on awakening, the dream contents simply disappear. You only have to wake up. So how am I to wake up? How can I live in the present moment? Well, there are two aspects of this. First of all, how should I live with myself to be free of stress and enjoy constant happiness? And the answer is by giving my heart and mind real food and not the dream food of the past and the future. So as regards the heart, one should fill the heart with love and not with possessions. Love enlightens the heart and lightens the heart, whereas possessions darken the heart and burden it. When you're in deep sleep, you have no possessions, and in deep sleep you enjoy contentment. With love, there is no desire for possessions because love makes you happy, not the possessions. And love is food for the heart. What we call feelings is junk food for the heart. And if your heart is empty of love, it will be full of possessions because there's no such thing as an empty heart. It is always full, but the question is what is it full of? It will either be full of love or full of possessions. So if your heart is 50% full of love, well, the other 50% will be full of possessions. If it is 80% full of love, well, then there will be only 20% possessions. If it's 100% full of love, then there will be no possessions. And the choice is ours. It is possible to have no possessions in deep sleep and it is possible to be free of possessions when fully awake as regards the mind how should the mind be so that I can be free of stress and enjoy constant happiness well the key is for the mind to be still because in stillness reason operates and when reason operates You cannot mistake a snake for a rope. Even if false knowledge does arise, it is seen and it's not acted upon. It doesn't affect you. It's like an experienced surgeon who finds himself or herself having to operate on the roadside. So the rain is pouring down and there are lights flashing past and there are horns beeping and all sorts of activity going on but they're not distracted, they're not affected in any way they just carry out the operation required. So when the mind is still even if false knowledge does present itself to the mind it doesn't distract the mind or affect it. Where the mind is still there's freedom from error. Again another sage from India called Krishnamurti who lived in the West for a long time. He once appeared on television in the 60s. And he was interviewed by somebody. And the man asked him, what about the stress of modern living? And Krishnamurthy said, what stress? And the interviewer got a bit exasperated by this. And he says, well, you know. You know the stress of modern living. He was a living example of it himself at that particular point in time. And he said, well, you know the stress of modern living. And Krishnamurti said, no, I don't know the stress of modern living. And a man again repeated, well, you know, you must know it. And Krishnamurti then took pity on him and he said, well, it's like this. He said, you may wish to go on a journey and you will form a plan with which to fulfill that journey. But unexpected things arise. It could be a, a sign which says to you, detour. He says, if you take that detour, you will have to abandon your original plan. But at some stage later, that detour will guide you back to your original journey. And then you can complete it. He says, if you ignore the detour sign that's there, well, then you'll end up in trouble. You'll end up in stress. He said, there are always warning signs. There are always signs telling you take this detour now but we ignore them and ignoring them the stress of modern living arises when the mind is not still then it makes the most unbelievable errors it has the capacity to lie to itself and believe its own lie which is a remarkable achievement when I was about say 27 or 28. I went into Dublin City after the Christmas vacation to do some shopping. I decided I would treat myself to some new clothes. So I went into a very very fancy shop which sold very very dear clothes and they had a pair of Italian trousers pure wool trousers for a fiber. Now in those days If you had Italian trousers, you were king. This was something to have Italian trousers. So I wanted those Italian trousers. And trousers normally cost about 25 or 30 pounds in those days. So a fiver was an amazing bargain. So I grabbed these trousers, went into the little cubicle, and as I put them on, they began to struggle around the kneecaps. But anyway, I eventually got them up and with an incredible intake of breath, I managed to get the zip closed. And I'm looking there at these trousers and they are far, far too tight. Like just maybe three sizes too small. But I say to myself, I could go on a diet. I could lose weight. Wouldn't be a bad thing. And as I looked and looked, it crossed my mind that they actually looked obscene. And I convinced myself that obscenity had certain advantages. <laughs> right? So I bought these trousers. I had to get them off very quickly, because I was going to have a heart attack at this stage. So I get the trousers off. I pay my fiver and say, this is just fantastic. Italian trousers, are fiver. So I go home with another superb intake of breath. I get them on again. And I show them to my wife. And she says, they're obscene. <laughs> <laughs> and so I never wore them. (laughs) Well, when the mind is not still, you can buy yourself obscene trousers. You can do anything. And this is the stress of trying to convince yourself that what is false is true. So that is how we should use the mind and heart. Fill the heart with love, and let the mind be still. And the third aspect is how should I live in the creation itself? so that love can grow in the heart and reason can operate in the mind, i.e. the mind can be still. And how one should live in the creation is to live a measured life. If I was to say to you, and you weren't to really philosophize about it too much, if I said to you, is an apple nutritious? You would ordinarily answer, yes, an apple is nutritious. If I said to you, well then swallow one whole, And you say, no, but that would kill me. So here we have an apple. If you eat it according to measure, it's nutritious. And if you try to eat it out of measure, it's a lethal weapon. Well, creation is exactly the same. If you live in this creation according to its measure, it's nutritious. It only offers happiness. If you try to live without measure or with ill measure, then it will kill you. And what is the measure of the creation? And the measure is the present moment. You're never asked to live two moments at a time. You're only ever asked to live one moment at a time. And the present moment is so small, there's never too much to handle in it. There's not enough going on in the present moment to ever cause you stress. It's too small. And if I can give, again, an example from my youth. And again, I think I was about 22 or 23. There was this girl that I was extremely fond of. In fact, I thought that we would marry. And anyway, one day in May or something like that, she announced to me that she was going to go to America for three months. And such being my innocence, I believed her. So she was going to go, say, the 1st of June. And so I made the most of May. And on the 1st of June, I drove out to the airport with her with a heavy heart. We said our goodbyes, and I was walking back towards the car. And what was in the heart or in the mind was, God, three months. How am I going to live three months without this woman? And I thought, it's just going to be awful. And then suddenly something happened. The mind became still... And a little question for me my mind, well, what happens if she was gone for a month? How bad would that be? And I thought, well, that would still be actually pretty awful, but it wouldn't be as bad as three months. Then the mind threw up another question. said, well, what would happen if she's gone for a week? And I thought, well, that wouldn't be too bad at all. In fact, I remember when she was away for a week, and I sort of did enjoy myself that week. <laughs> <laughs> well, I still didn't want her to be away for even a week. And then I thought, well, what happens if she was away for a day? this wouldn't bother me at all if she was away for a day I said well what happens if she was away for an hour I thought well sure, many an hour passes by and I never even think of her it wouldn't bother me at all and so I decided that I would live those three months moment to moment I never missed her and she never came back (laughs) And just so you don't misinterpret the story, she did not not come back because I didn't miss her. She didn't come back because she never had any intention of coming back. (laughs) I just didn't know it. Now, there was no loss of affection for this girl. I just didn't miss her. Because in the present moment, you don't miss anything. The present moment is the measure, it's the law of living and with it it offers freedom. It's not deprivation, it is simply not too much or not too little. Too much food makes you unhealthy and too little food makes you unhealthy. But the right measure of food offers you health or freedom from disease. And there is a measure for everything. There's a measure for food, there's a measure for sleep, there's a measure for work, there's a measure for recreation, there's a measure for wealth. The most excellent measure for wealth that I have ever heard was Socrates' measure for wealth. Once he prayed to the gods, and at the end of his prayer he said, and let me only have so much gold as self-restraint may handsomely carry. That's not a bad sum of money, is it? Only so much gold as self-restraint may handsomely carry. Well, what is the measure of my life? And your life? The measure of your life is what is in front of you now. And you respond to that. And if you do respond to that, you will have a full life, free of stress. What is presented to you on a moment-to-moment basis is fullness itself. And this is the measure of the creation, and it has no stress in it. With measure comes balance. And the reason balance arises is because you conserve energy. And when you conserve energy, then you can meet the calamities of life without being submerged by them. You know what it's like when you're very tired and a small unpleasant thing happens to you. And yet when you're full of energy, how you can deal with major unpleasant events. Well, with measure you get this balance and then this conservation of energy and then this capacity to deal with the less pleasant aspects of life that might arise. Now to bring this to an end, the work of practical philosophy is to allow love to grow in the heart and reason to grow in the mind and for a measured existence in the creation to evolve. All the disciplines and practices and study that are undertaken in the school are for the fulfillment of this. It arises fundamentally through a combination of the study of the words of the wise because they do have love in their hearts and reason in their minds and they do live a measured life. So it's a combination of the study of the words of the wise and the practice of meditation. Because meditation cleans out the heart of all its possessions and it brings stillness to the mind and it allows true measure to arise. So with this combination of the study of the wise and meditation, one is led to a blissful, stress-free life. To finish with the Shankaracharya, he says, Those who have love in their hearts and reason in their minds act in unison, for they feed on bliss. Those whose heart says one thing and the mind says another feed on pleasure and pain for they have not realized love or unity. So this is the work for every human being. Love in the heart, reason in the mind, and measure in activity. And the outcome is a life free of stress with abundance of bliss. So, good luck with it. Thank you. So, who would like to ask the question?
2: Thanks, Shane, for, again, an excellent lecture. I think it's been very helpful. Good. Inspiring. Can I raise a few points? Absolutely. Okay. Firstly, I believe that being a human being, that we should be concerned about the future. I think it would be a sad day for the world, for instance, in the environmental field, if we were just concerned about the present moment. I think that's what differentiates human beings from other creatures. Okay? That's the first point.
0: All right, well I deal with that one, if that's okay. Is, is that all right? Okay. When you are fully in the present moment, you are aware of the consequences. This thing of live and eat and be merry today and sort of forget about tomorrow, that's not living in the present moment. The present moment will tell you the future consequence. So You don't have to wait for mad cow's disease to arise. You can know that feeding an animal with its own flesh is not the right way to feed an animal. You don't have to know the future. You just ask yourself, is that right to do that now? A woman of knowledge would know that. So living in the present moment will not in any way endanger the future. In fact, it will take care of the future. The danger is, when you consider the future, is that you leave the present moment. And an example in sport, albeit it relates to sport, it applies to everything, is if you ask a golfer, uh, an excellent golfer, how does he ensure that he gets the best shot? He will say, I give all my attention to the present moment. Now what the amateur are the you know, golfers like you and me do, is that we're concerned about where the ball will go and we hope it will go down st- the, the fairway straight and it will go far. So part of us is already down the fairway. But the excellent golfer is fully in the moment. He or she knows that if they give themselves fully to that and they hit the ball, it's all taken care of. That's the difference what philosophy would say is if you give yourself fully to the present moment the future is taken care of because it's all determined in the present moment another sporting example would be like if you take something like snooker and you take an excellent snooker player he doesn't necessarily aim directly at the ball he may have to go off a few cushions but where that ball will end up is all determined at the point of impact Once the impact is made, it's all predetermined where the ball will actually end up. And the key is to give fully to the point of action.
2: Thank you. I think it's okay for enlightened people like us to to understand the concept. But I mean, the carpe diem, I think the Romans themselves fell at that hurdle. I think at the end of the day, they didn't give concern to the future. Yeah, I agree, of course, what you're saying, that for enlightened people, that's perfectly true. But I think the message to the world in general must be that they have to have concern for the future, as well as as enjoying the present moment.
0: Well, the wise would disagree with you. Like Jesus would say, take no thought for the morrow. If I may say it like this. You believe that you have to take care of yourself. You think you have to take care of the future. Now, what Jesus would say is that your Father in heaven takes care of everything. You don't have to worry about it at all. Just enjoy yourself. Welcome to the party. (laughs) Don't worry about the washing up. You won't be asked to. That
2: reminds me, Shane, of the question of the person praying that he would win the lotto, and eventually he gets a whisper from the guardian angel saying, listen, give us a hand. Why don't you buy a ticket?
0: Absolutely.
2: You know, so I think when, when these statements are are made and the one you referred to, I think God would understand the concept that you are expressing there, which I understand, I think. But I'm, the point I'm making is that as human beings, we can't just think of ourselves, and I, I obviously I would, I would take the issue that I'm thinking of myself, because I'm not. If I'm thinking of tomorrow, I'm thinking of what's going to happen, say, to the environment in the future.
0: How do you take care of the garden tomorrow?
2: You wouldn't dump in it today, but I mean, you can. That's what
0: living in the present moment. But if I was carpe
2: diem, I would be just dumping in the garden today. In a hundred years' time, if somebody discovers that there was toxic matter in the garden, that's
0: a problem for somebody else. I know, but the talk didn't ever say carpe diem or put toxic in your garden. That's not a definition of living in the present moment. If you are a man living in the present moment, you wouldn't put toxic in your garden. A man of reason is a man who lives in the present moment. And a reasonable man, or a man of love, would not put toxic in their garden. A farmer, who is a person of love or reason, will try and leave that farm for the next generation in a better state than they inherit it. That's acting in the present moment. You do the work now.
2: But well, unfortunately, like in that instance you mentioned, I mean, some landowners were obviously living for the present moment in recent, if recent instances are true in, in, in uh, abusing their trust by having uh, illegal dumps in, on the land. But no, ever- no,
0: can I just say this? That's not living in the present moment. That's greed. And it's criminality. That's what it is. Living in the present moment is to be aware of the needs of all now. If you were in the present moment and aware of the needs of all now you couldn't create an illegal toxic dump. That would be impossible. You would have to deny the present moment to do that. You'd have to deny the needs of everybody around you. You'd have to deny your neighbor.
2: But just, just finding that point because I've got a lot of points if I, if I, if I may. Right. Uh, I think that I would see the difference between, say, rational human beings, and as I mentioned, and other creatures, that we have this responsibility, and I, that to, to put the concept across might give the impression that one that the carpe diem. I know you didn't, didn't use that phrase, but I think that's the danger. Okay, can I, just well, we're to, all I, warned. Yeah, in no
0: carpe diem. All right. <laughs>
2: in relation to that uh, girl who went to America,
0: you want her address? <laughs> I was just wondering,
2: Jane, were you suggesting that one should treat such matters so lightly? One could turn on and turn off one's emotions. Like, I know that there are fleeting moments in life, and you know, you should enjoy the moment, but in that case, I was just wondering, like, what would the future have been? if maybe you hadn't accepted so readily, you know, if you had followed, maybe she would have come back, you know. <laughs> <So> <laughs>
0: I am very grateful that she didn't. <laughs> and I'm sure she's equally grateful that she didn't. Can I just say this? Don't use imagination to try and see whether my life would have been better or worse. Right? The very essence of this talk is to live in the present moment. Now, In fact, what the talk said was there was no turn-off of emotion. None at all. There was no reduction in affection for this girl. At all. All there was was living in the present moment. If you ask me, do I love my wife now? The answer is yes. Do I miss her now? The answer is no. There's no reduction in affection for my wife just because I don't miss her Now, it's possible to love someone, to be fully in the present, not be with them, and suffer no loss. That's the key. And that's all that was said. That by trying to swallow three months in a second, it would have caused emotional indigestion. But if one took it moment by moment, then it has no effect.
2: But I think the danger of that is that you accept, you're, maybe one is accepting things too readily. I mean, you can... Uh, How readily
0: would you like me to accept them?
2: Well, I think you gave up pretty, pretty uh, quickly in that instance. <laughs> S- should one accept things so lightly? And secondly... No, sorry, I'm like, just saying, say no, no,
0: but you're, you're using your imagination. You're saying to me, I gave up too readily. I didn't tell you what I did. I no, no, I didn't. What I said was, I lived in the present moment. And by living in the present moment, one didn't suffer a three-month absence in a moment. That's all. I said to you, there are two ways to eat an apple. You can eat it according to measure, or you can try to eat it whole. If you eat it whole, it will kill you. If you eat it according to measure, it will nourish you. What you're trying to imagine is me not eating the apple at all. I ate the apple, but according to measure. And it nourished me. That's the difference. That's quite a difference. And can I just say this? Be very careful about saying the danger is and the danger is. Don't live dangerously. Live in truth. And there is no danger.
2: Yeah, I think that as human beings we have to act as humans the pleasure of the moment is fine but we also have memories and there's the future which are part of the present so therefore to live fully it's not just the moment you have to enjoy the pleasures of the past and maybe look forward to the future
0: Why? Why because, do you have Because to. we're
2: human beings
0: What is a human being?
2: We, we are rational I mean, if you look at, say, a cow grazing in the field, that animal is enjoying the moment. Yes. Now, I think we have the added pleasure when we're having a meal; we can think about food we enjoyed in the past, or we can look forward. Well, let's, let's just so take this, let's this, just this take is the that richness one. of human of human no, But being. let's just
0: let's just take that one. Do you have a Do you have a dog? No. Do you ever have a dog? No. Have you ever seen a dog eat? <laughs> All right. Do you know the relish with which a dog consumes its food? It's the almost unbelievable muck you put in front of it, and it absolutely adores it. It won't stop and say, God, I remember that pal. (laughs) They used to make better pal in the old days. (laughs) I wish I got brought out for a meal every so often. They are 100% in that little bowl. If you could do the same, you would get an entire human being tasting food you cannot believe what that is like. I just give it to you in terms of sport. When I drive, sometimes I'm thinking about the future and sometimes I'm thinking about the past. And nobody but nobody has ever rung me up and said will you drive for Ferrari and we'll give you 30 million pounds. And they're never going to. But I can assure you that Michael Schumacher when he drives isn't thinking, should I be bringing home a sliced pan? Is that what she asked me to do? And he's not thinking about last week's race, and he's not thinking about next week's race. And because an entire human being pours itself into driving, you get magnificence. You get driving of a supreme level, which is worth 30 million a year. The human being has unbelievable capacity. And what we do is we use very little of it to live moment by moment. So we eat in an average way and we walk in an average way and we have average conversations with people. But if you could come into the present moment where all your power, all your intelligence and all your love was poured onto the present moment, you would find a whole new world. The world that man is meant to.
2: It's just i I'm just making the point in relation to a human being as distinct from the dog's life. The dog's life is much less rich than than we can. That is the point I'm making. That, although a dog appears to be enjoying his meal at Airs Food at the moment, I think a human being can enjoy a meal more so because of their soul, or because of the fact that they are a human being.
0: The possibility is that in the present moment you have full access to your true self, and that you will enjoy. Greater and greater levels of happiness if you just give yourself to the present moment rather than mix the present moment with some of the past and some of the future. The past is dead and gone and the future has not happened. It cannot offer you anything except a mental food. If you want real food, you have to live in the present moment. If you want to taste your food, you have to live in the present moment. How much of a meal do you taste? You get the first mouthful and you say, that's wonderful soup. The next time you're staring at an empty bowl. How much conversation do you hear? How is it that you can find somebody boring and yet their mumsy pie loves them and doesn't find them boring at all? (laughs) How is that? What are you missing? That some other human being has found in them that makes them worthy of love, and you can find nothing in them. Well, maybe that person really uses their heart in relation to them or their minds. That's the possibility. Thank you. No problem. Yes, anybody else? Shane, um,
2: I'd like to just ask you a question. How do you reconcile living in the present moment and planning for the future, such as maybe taking a hull you know, some future event.
0: Yes. A misinterpretation of living in the present moment would be to, say, turn up at Dublin Airport on July the 17th and say, I want to get on the plane because I'm going on my holidays today. That would be a misinterpretation of living in the present moment. If you want to go on your holidays on July the 17th, there may be a present need to book it on January the 17th. So you should book it on January the 17th. There may be a need to pay a deposit on, say, February the 17th. That's a present need. So pay the deposit. But don't spend February, March, April, May and June saying, what am I going to do on the second day and the third day and the fourth day? And will I use factor four or eight? (laughs) That's not required. That's not living in the present moment. It's like people saying, you know, if I won the lotto, this is what I would do with it. And so they say things like, well, I'd I'd give some to charity, and I'd give some to granny because she was good to me. And then you you make up a list, and it comes to more than your winnings. So you go back and you cross out granny because she hasn't got long to live. (laughs) The point about it is, you don't need to plan what you're going to do with your lotto. Wait until you win. Then you'll know what to do. Planning is taken care of by meeting the present need. Say a farmer who wants a crop of wheat to be ready in August or September, or whatever wheat does mature. He doesn't wait till August or September and throws a few seeds into the ground. He plants them in, let's say, spring. That's not future planning. That's meeting the present moment. The need now is to plant the seeds now. And if you do that, what you'll find is that you take care of everything when it needs to be taken care of. Again, there's a marvelous quote from the Old Testament. There's a time to fight, and there's a time for peace, and there's a time to rest, and a time to work. There's a perfect time for everything. And again, to give a sort of a a humorous example, you know, there's a perfect time to get on the bus. If you try to get on it before it comes to the bus stop, there's a danger it's gonna run you down. If you decide you wait till it's after moving away from the bus stop you have to be an Olympic sprinter to catch up with it. But there is a time to get on it which requires the minimum effort and it offers the maximum efficiency. And if you're in the present moment you'll always know the present need and you will deal with it there and then. What we tend to do And it's rather unfortunate because the more important a future event is to us, the more we plan it. So let's say you want to borrow 10,000 pounds from the bank and you consider this a large sum of money. So what you do is you go through about 40 different interviews with the bank manager, all inside your head. And you imagine yourself saying this. Now you say, bank managers like prudence. So I must get that word in every so often. And all that sort of stuff. And by the time you go to the bank manager, there's this wet, over-rehearsed rag in front of the bank manager, and you look totally untrustworthy, because you're not speaking the truth, you're speaking your rehearsed speech. The key is, if you want to go to borrow some money from the bank manager, you to know how much money you want to borrow, what you want it for, and to determine that you will repay. And you present that to the bank manager. It doesn't take a lot of rehearsal. It takes very simple clarity of need, amount and the quality of the person is going to take the money. So what you'll find is this. Instead of having to go to the bank manager 50 times to get one loan, you only have to go to him once. Instead of going to the interview 400 times, you only go to it once. You know, when I was younger, I used to imagine my wife dying. I have buried her about a dozen times already. I have grieved at the funeral. I know which suit I'm going to wear when she dies. It's the grey one. It will look good. I shall look very sort of upset in the grey suit. <laughs> 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 There's a, a very good friend of mine, lady. And unfortunately for her, her husband died. She was about 50 when her husband died. I've met her since, and we've spoken on a few occasions. She said, one of the really upsetting things is she said, I always imagined that I was going to die first. And I spent my whole life worrying about who would take care of my husband after I died. All for nothing, because he died first. Winston Churchill was asked, did he have any sleepless nights during the Second World War? and he he said he had many and they were all caused by battles that never happened you cannot conceive of the waste of your own substance in past memories and future anticipations you cannot believe what it does to you if you would only come into the present moment you would be like a child you would be so bright that everybody would love you Even children have obnoxious personalities and yet they are loved. You have an obnoxious personality and you're not loved. (laughs) (laughs) If it could only get you as bright as a child again, we wouldn't have to worry about your personality. So come into the present moment, live there, meet the need now, and you will find that you will be able to go on your holidays and all of those sort of things are taken care of.
2: If living in the present is the only way to be stress-free, what if the present moment is extremely unpleasant, like being in a dentist chair and getting a very bad feeling or being in Afghanistan and getting shells lying around you or something like that?
0: Right. Well, to take this one, let's take the dentist one because I'm not familiar with the shells dropping around now. But to take the dentist chair. When I first came to the School of Philosophy, somebody told me this. If you live in the present moment, there will be no stress. And I had a normal skeptical eye. I didn't really believe this. I don't think this is true. And I thought of the dentist's chair example. Anyway, due to genetic defects in my mouth, I didn't have to wait very long to go to this dentist's chair and sit there. And I decided, I'm going to practice this. I'm going to go to the dentist sit in his chair and be absolutely in the present moment and see what happens. So there I went. And I sat there and I decided I would put my attention exactly where the drill was grinding into the tooth. Right there, right at the tip where it was just going around and around, grinding away. And so I put my attention there. And you know what I discovered? That there's no pain there there's absolutely no pain at the center. None at all. That's just a sensation. It could have gone on forever. It's like at the center of a storm there's no movement. And I know sometimes we find this difficult to imagine, but the center of a wheel of a bicycle doesn't move, no matter what speed you're doing. There is no movement at the center. If you can get to the center, you find absolute stillness and absolute rest. What we tend to do with what we call unpleasant events is to recoil from them. And the more you recoil, the more uh, the burden is. Most physical pain becomes a burden because of the mental and emotional associations with it. The physical pain itself is only a sensation. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of cutting yourself, but not knowing that you've cut yourself, and you can cut yourself seriously, and you don't know, and then you look down, you see all this blood dripping, and you say, "Oh my God!" and then all the pain starts. Do you, you recognise that? This is why you can hypnotise somebody, and you know, them have a serious wound, and not be affected. They have detached the mind from the physical event. If you come into the present moment, you'll find that pain either will either minimize, or if you really, really come into the present moment, it won't be there. We can organize a visit to the dentist if you want to try this out. Then you say, I don't need those stupid injections anymore. I go to philosophy. <laughs> Shane, you did mention that attachments cause stress. Now, would that include attachment to opinions? And if that is
1: so, how would that affect you
0: personally? How would what? Being attached to opinions? Mm -hmm. Well, whoever is attached to opinions will suffer stress by being attached to them. So would you be stressed by your own opinions? If I'm attached to them. And are you attached to them? Which one would you like to ask me about? (laughs) (laughs) I was just asking you generally. (laughs) To the degree that there is attachment to opinions, there will always be stress. There's no way out of it. Because what happens is, if somebody attacks that opinion, you take it as an attack on me. You always take it as an attack on me. And an attack on me is very stressful, because I'm totally lovable, totally pure and perfect and complete, and shouldn't be attacked by anybody. What Socrates says, which is fantastic, he says, when you enter into a discussion, your desire should be to be relieved of your regrets. Because it's a wonderful thing to be freed from error. So if a man points out to you that your opinion is wrong, you thank him. So that's the way. So when you have no attachment to your current assumptions or opinions, then what you'll find is your interest is in truth alone. And if somebody frees you from an opinion that you hold dearly, but which turns out to be erroneous, you're grateful. That is the experience. Just like if you're walking on the road thinking you're going to O'Connell Street, but you're actually walking towards Black Rock. If somebody points that out to you, you don't say, how dare you attack my opinion as to where I'm going. You say, thank you very much. So what you'll find is this anyway. If there isn't attachment, there is total freedom. And in fact, there is delight in being freed from an erroneous opinion. Thank you. Yes, anybody else?
1: I was just thinking of something as you were talking there, and it was... (laughs) (laughs) It's
0: unusual for me, but no, 30 years ago, the word stress was rarely, if ever, mentioned. It's nearly a daily occurrence now in the workplace, uh, not at home, thankfully, but was it called something
1: else thirty years ago or is it more prevalent now?
0: Well, this is an evaluation so it may or may not be true but the belief here is that there is more stress now. And the fundamental reason for it is that man has become more and more selfish. He's more and more materialistic and you have got the rundown of religion, the growth in the belief in material wealth, the belief that this will make us or me happy. Now everything in this creation is born, grows, matures, decays and dies. Nothing lasts forever. No relationship, no object lasts forever. If you place your faith in the physical, then you will have to face its death. And if you enjoy its presence, you will grieve its absence. And nowadays, there's tremendous emphasis on attachment to that which is passing. He needs to take care of the body, and he needs to enjoy the transient, that's all fine. But he needs to dedicate some time to discovering the eternal, one of the reasons why true love is so satisfying is because it doesn't change. You don't go home to your wife and say, well, I loved you at nine o'clock, but about quarter past nine I was full of doubt. At nine thirty I thought it was somebody else, but at ten o'clock I was back to you again. So I presume that's all right with you. <laughs> you know. <laughs> what your wife would want from you is a constant love. And even though there may be arguments and there may be disappointments and all that, you would still expect that there would be an underlying, unchanging emotion, i.e. love for your wife or children or whatever. If you can find that, if you can find the unchanging, you'll really enjoy the transient. When you don't know the eternal then the transient or the creation becomes very, very serious for you. So watch, say, children. And what you do is, let's say you buy them a board game and we will make it Monopoly. Now, why do you buy them a board game? So that they may be happy. You don't say, now, this should cause a few fights. This should be interesting. (laughs) But what does it do? It does cause a few fights. Because he's got all the hotels and I have to go to jail. When you buy your children, let's say, a board game and they start to play, and then they start fighting with each other, what do you say to them? You say, it's only a game. Just enjoy the game. Well, life is a game. You play being husband, you play being wife, you play being father, you play being son. They're just roles we put on. We're all quick change artists. But we're none of the roles we play. Sylvester Stallone is not Rambo. <laughs> in fact, I think Rambo is Sylvester Stallone. Laurence <laughs> <laughs> Olivier cannot become Hamlet. Does that make sense? He could play it every night till the day he dies, but he cannot become Hamlet. And if his little mumsy pie was in the audience, she would always see Lawrence or Larry, as she might call him she would know who was there despite the appearance of Hamlet. But you and I forget. We forget it is Laurence Olivier. We think it is Hamlet. And you and I have forgotten who we are. And you've forgotten who your wife is. And You've forgotten who everybody else is. You think she's a wife. You think she's a mother. Well that's like thinking that Laurence Olivier is Hamlet. When we came back from our honeymoon We went to visit my wife's parents and we had some photographs and I was standing to the right of my wife and my father-in-law was standing to the left of her. And my wife was showing some photographs of the honeymoon. I was looking at the photographs and then I looked up and I saw my father-in-law with tears in his eyes looking at my wife. And I realized that he couldn't see a wife. He could only see a daughter. In fact, he knew somebody that I had no knowledge of at all. My wife's name is Anne, so he knew Anne the daughter. And I knew Anne the wife. Only for a fortnight, but I still knew her anyway. (laughs) Sometimes I see my children looking at Anne, and they see Anne the mother. And I've seen her sisters look at her, and they know Anne the sister. Now, if I only know my wife, I only know this woman in part. Because she's not a wife all day long. When she's having a cup of coffee with a friend, she's a friend, not a wife. When she's got a child in front of her, she's a mother, not a wife. So if I only know wife, I know very little about her. And the real key is to know the person I want to call it person or the substance behind the roles. And when you do, when you discover that in yourself, then you discover that you're not Irish, that you're not male, that you're not intelligent or stupid or hard-hearted or open-hearted or any of these things. You're way beyond all of that. Just like Laurence Olivier, you won't mind playing Macbeth, a real nasty guy. You'll enjoy being nasty. And then you'll enjoy all the parts you play. And then you'll enjoy freedom, and there'll be no stress. Let's say Laurence Olivier is playing Hamlet, and he kills the uncle. And the curtains come down. He doesn't go over rush over to the guy and say, look, I'm very sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> got to accept it's in the script. <laughs> I'm acting under instructions. He doesn't say that. He doesn't apologize for his behavior at all. Children never apologize for their behavior. They spread milk from their bottle on the carpet and they spread it around on the carpet. They don't say, look, I'm very sorry about that. They say, mommy, look what I've done. They never apologize because they know they're not the spiller of the milk. They're absolutely free. But you think they are a child who spilled milk and you tell them you're a very bold entity. You have spilt milk on my carpet. <laughs> right. And so the child says, oh, daddy's very wise. <laughs> he knows who I am. I am a bowl spiller of milk. And so you grow up to believe that you're a bowl spiller of milk, or an accountant, or a husband, or a father. Whereas all the time, you're a long Or you are your true self. If you study the words of the wise, they never tell you that you're an accountant or an engineer. Jesus wouldn't call the adulteress an adulteress when she was brought before him because she wasn't. He saw behind the roles. The Pharisees couldn't understand how he would hang around with the sinners because they could only see the sinner. Well, when you can see the real self behind the sinner and the saint—you'll never experience stress again. That's it. Thank you. Yes. Anybody else? I just wanted to ask about
1: memory. You were saying that um, if we don't live in the present and we, we use our memory, it causes us stress. I'm just wondering why do we have memory at all? Why are we capable of, you know, hurting ourselves? Like, is God cruel or bad sense of humor? I would say that very
0: quietly, if I was here.
1: (laughs) Why are we capable of stressing ourselves?
0: Well, this is one explanation. There are many ways of looking at it, but this is one explanation. As was said earlier, animals are only given certain freedom. They are normally dominated by their natures. And this is why you get a very small range of behavior within the animal kingdom compared to the human world. In the human world, you can get something ranging, let's say, from Hitler, we'd make it to Mother Teresa. It's a very, very broad range. Within the doggy world, you can have a bad dog or a good dog. It's a much narrower range because the dog is fundamentally dominated by its own nature. If you accept the scriptural authorities, it says that man was made in the image of God. God is free. So man is free. Because he has freedom, he has free will. But under ignorance, he uses that free will to limit himself in error and causes himself stress. Stress is not imposed on the human being by the Creator. It is chosen by the individual himself. For example, when I went to that airport and tried to get on that plane, nobody made me get angry. Nobody made me curse the Department of Foreign Affairs. That was free will. Say I have a vocabulary of 5,000 words or whatever a reasonable vocabulary is, I picked certain words, one of them was department, another one was of, another one was of affairs, and the other ones I'm not going to mention to you. Right? I selected those words and expressed them. Nobody forced me to say them. So man, in error, chooses that which is productive of his own misery. But he doesn't have to it's not a hopeless cause at all because there have been many wise men and women in the world and a number of them have left behind systems and they say follow me That's all you have to do I've done the work just follow me and they leave behind complete systems and all you have to do is find one that suits your particular temperament and follow it all the way and then you will be relieved of your own ignorance and the stress goes. So, There's a lady over here.
3: Thank you. I think you said that if you can see the real person behind the sinner then you won't have stress. But sometimes the sinner by their sin can cause one stress.
0: Sometimes
3: the sinner by their sin can cause one stress. For example, if somebody murders somebody belonging to you, or rapes you, or robs from you, that sin can cause stress. Even if I can see there is a person obviously behind the sin, the stress is still there for me by their action.
0: Alright. Well, that's not completely true. The cause of the stress is not the action that does not cause the stress so for example let's say if you said to me if I said to someone you are an absolute idiot that that would cause them stress all right? you might put forward that argument Well, I say well, what happens if they're asleep and I say it to them I wait till they fall asleep and I say you're an absolute idiot you'll find it has no effect. So calling somebody an absolute idiot has no effect. The effect is caused by the receiver. Not the giver of the offense, but the receiver of the offense. And if the receiver of the offense was asleep, there's no effect. If the receiver of the offense is fully awake, there's also no offense. Now, to make this practical for you, Say I offered you a glass of arsenic. Would you take it? Yeah. If I said to you, look, it's initially very refreshing. Ignore the long-term consequences. This is philosophy. <laughs> we live in the present moment. Would you take it? No, you wouldn't. If I said it's a pretty color, would you take it? If I said it's a sweet taste, you won't take it. So there's nothing I can do to make you take this arsenic. And there's a very simple reason why. It's because you have accepted without reservation that arsenic is bad for me. Now, taking offense at what another does only makes you miserable. That's what its fruit is. It is the arsenic of the emotional world. If you could with the same certainty which you reject arsenic, reject offence, you would never be hurt by another person's actions. And there's an example, again, to keep it practical, and I've told the story many times, but this is the story of the Buddha. The Buddha was sitting under a tree, silent, and a man came up to him and started to abuse him verbally, and called him all sorts of names. And the Buddha sat there silently, pitying the man's folly. And then eventually the man ran out of things to say, and he became silent. And the Buddha, waiting for the man to become silent, when he had become silent, then said to the man, My son, if someone offers a present to another, and the other refuses to accept the present, with whom will the present remain? And the man said, "Will it will remain with the giver. The Buddha then said, well, I refuse to accept thy offence and request thee to keep it to thyself. And then he said, as sure as night follows day and shadow the substance, evil will overcome the evildoer without fail. And the man went away ashamed and came back and took refuge in the Buddha. The man offered offence to the Buddha, but the Buddha did not take the offence. If you do not take the offence, you will not suffer it. Why would you accept offence? If you won't accept arsenic, why would you accept offence? It's poison for the heart. So the discipline, it's either a discipline or a knowledge required to understand to take offence is to poison your own heart. And if you could come to an absolute clear decision on that, you would never take offence again like you will not take the arsenic. And it is possible to do that. And again, just to help this even further. We often take more offense if it's somebody who loves us gives us the offense. Because we feel disappointed. But the truth of the matter is let's, let's make it anger. Let's say the offense comes via anger. When somebody is angry with you they're miserable. They're not happy when they're angrily speaking to you. If you love them, you should be moved by their misery, not by their anger. Does that make sense? When somebody's angry with you, they're not happy, therefore they're miserable. You have a choice to be moved by their anger or to be moved by their misery. If you're moved by their anger, you'll become angry yourself. If you're moved by their misery, you will out of love wish to relieve them of their misery. You always have a choice. So the key is when somebody offers you offense do not take the offense and relieve them of the reason why they are giving the offense because they are the suffering party.
3: I can accept if the offense is verbal and I can rationalize but if the offence is physical, and I can't understand why somebody jumps on me in the street and knocks me down, and I am physically I am physically stressed, no matter how I rationalise, my body feels stress.
0: There's a famous story about Martin Luther King, Jr., and he was giving a talk in a church. And the vast majority of the people in the church were black, but there were a number of whites. And there was one particular white man sitting in the front row. And as Martin Luther King came out to give his talk, the white man jumped out of his seat and threw a punch at Martin Luther King and knocked him to the ground. And about 20 uh, Negroes jumped on the white guy and said, "Let's effectively, let's lynch him. And Martin Luther King said, that is not our way. Our way is not that. What we need to discover is what has been put into this man's mind, so that when he sees a black man, he wishes to strike him. Then we will understand him and then we can help him. Now that's a man of love.
3: But I bet he still felt stressed. Sorry? I I'd, I'd say Martin Luther King still felt stressed. Because in inexperi- yeah yeah you, like you that. think that
0: a stressed man would say that?
3: Yes. Really? I could, I could imagine. Yeah. All
0: right. Well, those words don't convey stress to me at all.
3: But do you think if your body is hurt, there must be stress?
0: No, of course not. You might as well say that if I've got the flu, am I, I have to be in a bad humour. There are lots of people who get the flu and are impossible to live with for so long as they have the flu, and there are some people who are dying with terminal illnesses, with our bodies racked in pain. Pain that you and I have never had to face. And all they can do is exude love and transcendence. You don't have to suffer the body. You let the body suffer itself. You don't have to add to its suffering.
3: Sorry, if that pain hasn't been inflicted on them by another human being, then I think there is a difference. Maybe they can transcend their pain, or their state of pain, yes. at that level. But I don't think, if it's been inflicted on them by another human being, then I think there is a difference. I would agree with that later. When Jesus went
0: on the cross, and they nailed him to the cross, do you remember his words? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do.
1: Mm.
0: Now, do you think that Jesus left an impractical message for you and they? Or do you think he left a system which can be practiced by ordinary human beings? Remember, he went to the ordinary people and he said, this is the message. He said, pray for them who despise you. Remember that? Don't love just the nice people because that's what publicans do. Everybody waves to his own customers. He said, pray for them which despise you. Do good to them which hurt you. You can do that. It it requires strength. Tremendous strength. But the human being has the capacity to develop that strength. It is possible to return good for evil every time. You may be offered hatred and you return love. It's absolutely possible. You'll notice that. Do you have any children? Yes. All right. Have your children ever offered you hatred? No, it's hatred Absolutely. with a small h. With I mean, an arch h. Oh right, well, <laughs> all right.
3: Well, I, mean, um, I hate you. Oh yeah, yes, but I mean,
0: I haven't noticed them putting arsenic into my tea. But well, my children have declared their hatred for me at times, and they say, "I hate you, Daddy," and I much prefer that Daddy down the road, you know, his children play football all the time and do no study. <laughs> <laughs> but what you will notice is that because you love your own child so much, that even their declarations of hatred for you don't affect you. Do you recognize that? Yes, I do. So the possibility is, if you could develop that love for other people, they could express hatred for you, and you would only offer them love in return. That's what true religion is all about, and that's what true philosophy is all about. The key is to have the strength. Practical philosophy gives you that strength. It makes it easy to return love for hatred or wisdom for ignorance. It's not gritting your teeth. It's not lying there as the guy's pummeling you saying, I will remain loving. (laughs) Anyway, that's what philosophy is all about and that's what true religion is all about. It's not hatred for hatred or tit-for-tat. That's the way of the world. The way of wisdom is to dissolve the misery or the ignorance in the other. Mr. McLaren, the man who founded the school, was perhaps perhaps the most compassionate man that I've ever met. So he suffered at the misery of the world. He asked the Shankracharya about compassion. And the Shankracharya said that compassion is absolutely natural for the human being. However, he said there is compassion under ignorance and there's compassion under wisdom. And compassion under ignorance is where you're moved by the misery of another to become miserable yourself. So now you have two people miserable as opposed to one. And compassion under wisdom is where you're moved by the misery of another to relieve the other of their misery and now nobody's miserable wisdom is unbelievable it turns all bad things into good things it makes everything perfect and what you'll find is this is that if you were and I make it a, a woman of love or wisdom and somebody was nailing you to the cross you would say exactly the same words. They are words of love. And man has the capacity for love and the capacity for reason. And if he develops love in his heart and reason in his mind and he lives a measured life then he will enjoy freedom from stress. Now what you've been presented with is the ultimate, so the ideal or the perfection. And that might seem quite far away from where you are right now. So take it step by step. Look at where there is not measure in your life. Look to those occasions when the mind wanders into the future and worries about outcomes, potential outcomes, and bring it back into the present moment and ask it to stay in the present moment and see if there are less stress there. And find out, is the future taken care of by living in the present moment? And what I will say, this is what I have found. And it's what others have found if they practise it. So I think on that happy note, we shall leave it. Thank you very much.